Good morning, everybody. Good morning to those of you watching online. You know, we have uh, five Christmas services coming up. Uh, sometimes people say, do you get tired? Actually, uh, I love it so much. I mean, it, it's so much fun that by the last one, I'm a little bit disappointed. Although by the fourth one, I'm wondering if I'm repeating myself within that same sermon because I just heard myself say it. So I got to, the reality is I got to look more closely at my notes uh, the, the more I preach it than uh, before that. So we're in our Advent season. We're in week three of our Advent series. And today we're looking at uh, Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We've been looking at passages in Matthew. And each week we've been changing the art. Stephanie does these. And uh, this is a, a phrase right from the passage, the one who has been born, the one who has been born king. So we're looking at the, at the Magi today. That's something right out of their mouth. And we love the Magi. We celebrate the Magi in art. We sing about it in songs in this time of year. But when they arrived in Jerusalem, that's not the reaction that they got. They got a much very, a very, very different reaction. Anywhere from hostility to, to their message, not to them, but to their message to indifference. So today we're going to be looking at the message that the Magi brought and why so many people were hostile or indifferent towards the message and why it actually was a message filled with hope for every single one of us. A little bit of feedback, something, I don't know what that is. All right, so uh, we're going to... Look at Matthew chapter 2, if you haven't opened there already, understanding the Bible doesn't have to be a mystery, so we open our Bibles every week, and I invite you uh, to open your Bibles or grab one of the Bibles from the seat rack in front of you, for those of you who are here, and uh, if you have a smartphone or tablet device, we are using the NIV. Matthew chapter 2, Matthew is the first book in the New Testament that's about three quarters of the way into the Bible, the first of the four Gospels. Let's pray that God would illumine his word to us. Heavenly Father, by your Holy Spirit, illumine your word. Open our minds to receive your word. Teach our hearts to love your word and to love you more deeply as we hear from you in your word. Strengthen our wills to obey you and to walk in the way of your son. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to have uh, one of our Five Oakers, uh, Five Oaks member plus uh, missions partner, uh, share uh, with us today the passage. Follow along as he reads it. My name is John Grimberg. I'm a ministry director at Filter of Hope, which is mobilizing and equipping college students, congregations, families, people like you and me to provide clean water and the gospel to those who are in desperate need of both. Our scripture passage today comes from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, 
for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. All right, we are going to come back to this passage again for our Christmas services, focus on the second half of it. But today we're going to focus a little bit more on the reaction of people as as they, uh, the Magi come and ask their question. Because when they show up in Jerusalem, they are asking a very specific question. They are asking, where is the baby king? And this question is so unexpected that I kind of imagine people uh, hearing the question and going, going wait, what? <laughs> like, we haven't heard about anything about a king being born. But these odd foreigners have shown up in our city just out of nowhere, and they're looking for this king, this king that none of us have heard about. So they've been following a star. It leads them to Jerusalem, and when they arrive, they likely created a bit of a sensation in the city. You've got to imagine this is not a big festival time when the population of Jerusalem might double or triple or even more. This is just regular time. It's a dense city. Uh, It's not sprawling. It's basically in a pretty small area relative to cities today. And the word would get out pretty quickly, and it did get out, and it eventually got to Herod as well. So I imagine Herod's reaction to be not so much, wait, what, but a little bit more like um, this basketball player, um, Harrison Barnes. This just a few years ago, about three years ago, he's sitting in a game. There's about six minutes left in the game, and the team announces to the media that he has been traded (laughs) to another team. And word kind of goes through the stadium, and then they start talking about it, uh, and the commentators, and uh, this is about the time that he hears (laughs) he's been traded. Now, it's a little different from Herod because he was aware that this could possibly happen. He was aware that this could possibly happen. But Herod knows nothing of another king coming in. This comes out of left field for Herod. So Herod calls together the religious leaders and he asks them, where is the Messiah to be born? Now, Messiah is a word for king. We forget that when it says Jesus Christ, it's saying Jesus king. The word Christ is the Greek word for Messiah. It's the anointed one. It's the king. So when they say king, David simply can slip in, I mean, uh, Herod can simply slip in the word Messiah because that's what we're talking about. And so he asked, where is the Messiah to be born? And uh, I like how one of, uh, a Matthew scholar, uh, describes the scene. He says this, for them, the religious leaders, Herod's question was Bible Trivia 100. I envision them standing side by side before Herod like contestants in a game show Jeopardy. And as soon as Herod is done asking his question, all of them simultaneously place their hand on the buzzer. What is Bethlehem 
of Judea. So, we have the response of Herod. We have the response of the people. We have the response of the religious leaders. All right, we're going to look at each one of those and see what their response is. And then we're going to uh, look at how our response to Jesus being the king oftentimes mirrors theirs. And then how we can change that. How we can begin to embrace the idea of Jesus as king. So let's start with Herod's response. Matthew tells us that Herod was disturbed by the news. All right, so uh, look at verse 3. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed. Some Athenian scholars uh, say, uh, that's not a, not a strong enough word. The NIV kind of missed an opportunity here or, or underplayed what's really happening. This word in this kind of context means a little bit more than just being disturbed. It can mean deeply troubled, alarmed. Uh, even in some contexts, it can mean like being in turmoil. So let's just say he was deeply, deeply disturbed by what was happening. From what we see Herod do next, in the following passage that we look at next week, we can say he was deeply threatened as well. He sensed a threat by this, by this king. Now, Herod was famous for his paranoia. Uh, there there I, could, I could fill the next 15 minutes telling you stories uh, about Herod's paranoia. But the one that probably stands out more than any other is the fact that he had one of his wives executed. And then when the sons, his sons from that wife, uh, were not happy with what he had done, he had them executed, his own sons, because he was afraid that maybe they would seek revenge and maybe take his life. Um, he had reasons for concern because of the way that just the nature of politics in that time. He was, for one thing, the king of the Jews, Herod the Great, king of the Jews, but he wasn't Jewish. Uh, that was something that the people of Jerusalem would hold up and really, when they were not happy with him, they would remind him of, you are not even one of us. He ruled under the Romans, so he was, in a sense, like a governor under the Romans, even though he was called a king. And as a governor of the Romans, he knew very well that the Romans didn't tolerate any kind of drama. It's the same kind of problem that Pilate runs into as we come to the end of the gospel, uh, that, uh, that the Romans don't tolerate drama. They don't want drama in any of their regions. And if someone cannot keep the peace, they get removed. And so those are real fears that Herod had uh, combined with just a murderous paranoia. So you can say that a couple of other words uh, might be that uh, he was hostile towards this whole idea and he was murderous in it as we see in the next passage. Another group of people that's mentioned uh, right after Herod is what is described here as all Jerusalem. So it says, when Herod heard uh, this, uh, he was disturbed and Jerusalem with him all Jerusalem with him. So it's making a kind of a broad statement about kind of the general reaction of the people as they hear this. It's using the same word, but they're not reacting for the same reasons. They have none of the same kind of concerns that Herod had. They have different kinds of concerns. And the reality is that they are concerned about the instability of a competing king being born, if it's true. If it's true, this 
This means trouble. This means division in families. This, this means possibly, um, you know, guerrilla warfare and war and, and all the things that come with that. So it's going to bring a lot of instability. So let's call their concern here a fear of disruption, a disruption of their lives, a disruption of peace, a disruption of everything that they are a part of. Another thing you might use to describe their reaction is that they felt destabilized because this is going to be a very destabilizing kind of situation. And, um, so it's, and it's understandable that that would be the case. If there's another king <laughs> that is going to compete with Herod, they don't know anything about him, this is a very destabilizing situation. And then you have the religious leader's response. Um, what's the response of the religious leaders? Think about it for a moment. They've heard from the Magi that a king has been born. Herod has made a connection and he says, tell me, where is the Messiah going to be born? They've answered the question. Now think about it. They are right in the middle of this question being asked and this possibility when these foreigners come and they say that there is this prophecy and that they are following the star. There is every reason to believe that possibly the awaited Messiah is born. And what do they do? Apparently nothing. No stories, no hints that they are going to Bethlehem as well, that they're looking for Jesus. There's, there's none of that. And so we may call their response indifference. It's just indifference. Are they too busy? Are they too busy uh, doing the work of God to take time to see what God might be up to? what God might be doing uh, right there in their midst? Uh, do they see the idea of a Messiah coming, even though it's something that they should be looking forward to? Do they see it as an annoying interruption to their routines and their way of life? Um, it's, it's easy to see in many ways. Um, it's easy to see how people, even today, people, let's say, outside of Christianity, hearing about Jesus and hearing the story of the gospel might respond in the same way. So we might look around and say some people are hostile to the Christian message. And their hostility, a lot of times, if you dig into their story, a lot of times it's because they themselves have come out of Christianity. They... Um, have come out of a highly dysfunctional church or a, a very um, highly dysfunctional family that has like used Christianity to control or there's all kinds of situations like that. But a lot of times that's the story of the hostility around us. Some people may be intrigued by Jesus in the world around us. Some people are intrigued by Jesus, but they don't want to experience the disruption that Jesus might bring to their life, even if it's true. So just kind of set it aside. And a lot of people are just indifferent. Uh, a lot of people don't even know any devoted followers of Jesus. And, uh, and so to them, you know, the message of Jesus seems completely irrelevant. Uh, it's everywhere at this time of year, but it's irrelevant when it comes to what Jesus actually taught, what he was and who he was and all of that. So it's easy to see that kind of response outside of us. But if we're honest, there's a bit of all those responses 
in every single one of us who claim to follow Jesus. Sometimes we get angry at God. We get angry at God when things don't go our way. Um, and that's not to minimize our way, because our way, oftentimes, what we want to happen is good, and it's, it's needed, and there's, there's someone that's suffering, or we're suffering, or someone we love. And when God doesn't respond, or answers our prayers with a no, or answers our prayers with a wait, or answers our prayers with a different answer than the one we were looking for, it's easy to become angry at God and hostile towards God. And the Psalms are filled with God's people in God's prayer book for us, filled with people expressing those kinds of feelings towards God. Now, I'm not saying that that hostility, you know, in us, uh, you know, reaches the lows of a King Herod who goes and kills the babies in that town to, to try to eliminate his competitor. But there is still anger in our lives. How about the fear of disruption in our lives? How many of us hear the message of Jesus as our Savior? And think about that, we, we receive Jesus as our Savior. And then it begins to dawn on us over time that he's not just our Savior, he's our God, he's our Lord. He's the leader of our lives. So preachers like me, and, and you might like it too, love quotes like this one from Abraham Kuyper. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of the human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Christ is sovereign. Christ is sovereign. And every square inch of existence belongs to him. That preaches, and it's inspiring. Then we look at it again, and we think about how it might apply to our lives, some of the decisions we're making, some of the ways that we live out our life. And we go, wait, what? <laughs> um, I'm not so sure that that's what I signed up for. So who doesn't battle also with times of just feeling indifferent towards God? Do you experience sometimes where you feel just an indifference towards God? Or would you just honestly say, no, that's my usual experience of God, is a sense of, yeah, just, it, it doesn't really matter much to me here where it, then it works out in my life. So what's the antidote to those kinds of responses to the idea of God being our king, our ruler, um, the one who, who, who guides us? I think part of the antidote to these kinds of responses is found in recognizing that Jesus, our king, is a shepherd leader of our lives. He is a shepherd leader. Not just any leader, a shepherd leader. You see it in Micah's prophecy. Look at verse 6. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least <clears throat> among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. It's talking about the Messiah. And he is a ruler <clears throat> that is a shepherd ruler. I think our attitude begins to change when we realize that Jesus, our king, is a shepherd leader, especially as we begin to recognize and see what that means that, that God and Jesus are shepherd rulers over our lives. Now, when you think of God as a shepherd ruler, a shepherd king, a shepherd, shepherding God, um, 
if you know the story of God, and even if you don't know it that well, there are, there's at least one passage that comes to mind, right? Psalm 23. I mean, that's one that uh, we hear a lot. Many of us pray a lot. And so uh, that might come to mind. There's another passage that might have come to mind, and that is what Jesus says about being our shepherd ruler. And um, you find that in John chapter, chapter 10. So let's, let's look at those two pas passages to, to really get a feel for what it means that this Messiah who comes, who's going to rule over our lives, who is our king, is a shepherding king. So the primary theme of Psalm 23 is God is my shepherd. That's the primary theme. That's the primary subject. And because God is my shepherd, the Psalm tells us uh, no matter what I'm going through, even in the valley of the shadow of death, he says. Uh, and this is a, a Psalm of David. David says, even in the valley of the shadow of death, I lack nothing, and God is with me. Those are the themes, subject and the themes that run through there. So pastor and author Tom Nelson writes this about Psalm 23. He says, in Psalm 23, King David draws from his own experience as a shepherd boy and frames his entire psalm around a shepherding metaphor. David describes the with God life, where there is no lack, David experiences God as a shepherd in a very personal, intimate way. He emphasizes the first person singular, my Savior leading me, with me, comforting me. David knows on an experiential level that his shepherd gets him, knows what he is going through, and is there with him when he is going through it. David has a transparent, safe, and secure relational attachment with God. David knows he is never alone. With that in mind, thinking of God, thinking of the Messiah, thinking of Jesus, our Savior, who is also our King and our leader, let's, let's relook at Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his namesake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil for you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You appoint, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. We think of our shepherding leader in those terms. It's part of the antidote to the indifference that we often feel, the anger that we feel, the threat that we feel to our lives when we follow Jesus as our leader over our lives. Um, God, David's shepherd, very clearly wants him to thrive. He wants him to thrive. And Jesus leads you as your shepherd, and he wants you to 
to thrive. And he's able. He's able to do it. In John chapter 10, uh, we have another passage that, that maybe comes to mind, as I said. Micah says, the ruler who will shepherd his people will be born in Bethlehem. And so Psalm 23 is part of the backdrop to what Jesus says in John chapter 9, John chapter 10. Here's what John, Jesus says in John chapter 10. He's, um, he's talking about real shepherds versus hirelings, all right? And he's comparing himself to them. And he says, the, the sheep listen to the shepherd, shepherd's voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. All of this applies to him. He goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. And later he says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. <clears throat> but I, your shepherd leader, have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Now, the audience that he's speaking this to is probably a little bit closer to shepherding of sheep than most, most of us, a few of you may know a shepherd or two. Um, but uh, part of the picture of what this means, I mean, obviously it means the shepherd is willing to go against predators and all of that uh, for the sake of the sheep, put their lives on the line if necessary. But it's a little bit of a pic different picture that also comes, and uh, I'll show you. This is uh, a picture from uh, Israel. Look how long my beard is. Like, put about 10 years on me, I think. Um, one of those things you go back and you look at the pictures and say, I, I need to cut this thing. Um, so anyways, uh, this was from a, a, a few years ago, and um, this is part of, if you go on our Israel trip, and if you haven't heard about it, put Israel on your, on your Connect card, and I'll get you some information. But we make a stop here, and sometimes when shepherds would be out in the fields and far enough away that they can't get, can't, can't get back to whatever kind of pens that they normally had, uh, they had enclosures in various places, and this is out in a field where there are still shepherds that are shepherding their sheep in this area. And there would be enclosures like this one that are, you know, handmade, and, and there would be an opening, and there wouldn't be a gate. You know, shepherds didn't carry around a gate with them, so what did they do? They became the gate. Uh, they would lie down so that any predators who might come during the night would have to go through them in order to get to the sheep. That's the kind of picture that Jesus is painting here. That's what he's trying to get across to them. You can see Jesus from the perspective of a threat. He's a threat to your own sovereignty, uh, your own being the king of your own life, you doing you as you want to do you. You can see King as Jesus as a threat to that. And he will threaten that. I mean, he will challenge you. He'll say, no, you, have, you need to make a choice. You need to make a choice between me as your sovereign, your king, or yourself or whatever other kings that you follow in your life. You can see Jesus as a destabilizing factor in your life. And the reality is sometimes following him does result in trouble. He might ask you to give of yourself in a way that you don't want to give of yourself, whether it be your time or your stuff. It's, it's possible that some of your friends 
even some family members might marginalize you because you take your faith seriously and they in some way don't, they're not in agreement with that. Um, those are some of the possibilities that you might get in trouble. You might get in trouble at work. If work is asking you to do, go in a direction that your shepherd's not leading you, something diametrically opposed to your good shepherd. And <clears throat> you can see Jesus as an interruption. Um, weirdly, that happens in our lives, right? Weirdly, like the religious leaders, it's like, don't get in the way of all the religious stuff that I'm doing. <laughs> Don't interrupt it. I mean, it's like the story of this Good Samaritan, right? It's the priest and the Levite who are probably on their way to something very important who walk right by the guy on the side of the road. And we do that in our lives. We, we see Jesus when he is moving in some way as some sense, um, some kind of interruption. Um, Sometimes we're just really comfortable. We're comfortable, comfortable with our small group, comfortable with our church. We, we feel loved and cared for. And Jesus is talking to us and moving us to send us, uh, to send us on his mission in some way. And we cling. I mean, this is one of the ways that we can see him as, a, as an interruption. We cling to what we have and we won't let him lead us to where he wants to take us for the sake of his mission. So you can be deeply disturbed by Jesus ruling in your life, or you can recognize that all the other forces competing for the allegiance of your heart, including your own desires, none loves you and cares for you and is able to lead you to a flourishing life like Jesus can. Don't you know, <laughs> I think you do, even your own desires, even your own desires will betray your long-term flourishing time after time. And if this is true about Jesus, that he is wanting to lead you in a way that will bring you to a flourishing life, if this is true, doesn't it make sense to listen to what he says about connecting uh, with God's people uh, in a way that when we gather together, for example, we are singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. We're digging into the word to hear from God. We're, we're encouraging each other with each other's presence, with each other's participation, with the conversations that happen in here, with the conversations that'll happen out there. Doesn't it make sense to connect with God's people, to serve with God's people? Doesn't it make sense to deepen our relationship with God? Um, to spend time in his word, to grow to know him better so that we can trust him even more. To understand the direction that he wants for our lives, the way that he wants us to lead our lives. To spend time in his word, to spend time in prayer, uh, communicating with him, speaking with him, being silent before him, listening to him. Doesn't it make sense to do that if this is if it's true that Jesus wants to be our shepherd for a flourishing life. And isn't it true that, that if that's true, that we would want to get out into the world and impact the world for Christ? That we would go into our workplaces, into our schools, and do our work as unto him. To do it well, but also um, 
to be a witness for him in everything that we do. Isn't that true? Won't we have a concern for, if this is true, that we want more people to experience this? So we're praying for people in our life who are far from God. And we're praying that we might be able to bless them and share the story of the gospel with them. And we're partnering with people all over the world in doing this. Isn't it true that if Jesus, isn't that what we would want in our lives if it's true that Jesus is a shepherding leader? And if Jesus is that kind of a leader, maybe if you haven't received Christ as your Savior and Lord, as your forgiver and your leader, if this is true about Jesus, maybe today is a day to receive him, to, to surrender to him, and, and seek to have a relationship with him through what Jesus did on the cross his death in our place. He took the penalty for our sins so that we can, we can be in a relationship with him, reconciled to him, redeemed to a life lived with him. As we begin our time of response today, I want to encourage you to take the bread and the cup and remember what the Apostle Paul told us. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that um, you are a shepherding leader. We thank you that Jesus, the Messiah, is a shepherding king. We thank you that we can trust him. Father, help us to... Uh, to learn that deep down in our soul, not just in our minds, not just in our heads, but that we would have that sense growing in a deeper way that we can trust you with our lives. And Father, for anyone here today who's never received you as Lord and Savior, praying to you to forgive them of their sins based on what your son did on the cross following you, following Jesus. Father, I pray that they would take that step today. And Father, I pray that all of us would walk more closely with you and that we would be concerned not just with our own agendas, but your primary agenda. That we would go to the ends of the earth sharing the good news. The good news of the gospel. That you are making all things right. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.